Oh my gosh, Emily. I cannot believe this incredible chocolate we've been tasting. Ugh. We had to bring Eric and Jalisa from Storyboard Delights back to discuss. Absolutely we did. What is it about your chocolate that makes it so magical? Ooh, it's magical because we infuse so much fun in our chocolate. It's not something serious, but it is a serious experience. We make sculpted chocolate bars that have stories to tell, like, for instance, our Red Riding Hood bar. Oh, the Red Riding Hood bar is super fun. First, we start with the digital painting on the front, and it tells the first part of the story of Red Riding Hood walking into the woods. And then when you unwrap it, you have this sculpted bar of Big Bad Wolf sitting in Granny's bed. And then you taste it, and the flavor profile wraps up the rest of the story. And so you first, when you bite into it, you taste the earthiness of the chocolate, which is the hunting grounds of the Big Bad Wolf. And then you've got the Pasilla chili pepper, which provides sort of the prowl. It's kind of spicy, not quite, but then the guajillo bites you at the end, just like the Big Bad Wolf. You can find us at www.storyboarddelights.com. Pick out whichever chocolate you want, whichever story you want, and we will ship it right to your door. Fantastic. I'm going to storyboarddelights.com right now. Hello and welcome to the Modern Romantic Podcast, where we celebrate and inspire romanticism through passionate people doing incredible things. Hi, I'm fancy enough to be a filet mignon, but still comforting like a baked mac and cheese. I am Trey. Uh, I am joined by my co-host, Emily, today, and our special co-host, Josh. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. Hello, hello. <laughs> today, we are excited to chat with James Beard and Emmy Award winner, Ming Tsai. You might know him from his PBS show, Simply Ming, Iron Chef, his five cookbooks, his many restaurants, and his fierce squash playing, and his more recent and tasty endeavor, Ming's Bings. We can't wait to chat about his journey and the art of food. Please welcome to the podcast, Ming Tsai. Yay! <laughs> welcome, Chef. There we go, guys. I don't know. We just had Montana Wi-Fi issues. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's we're, okay. We're, we're glad you're back. I can, I can <laughs> see and hear you clearly now. Okay, awesome. excellent. Fabulous. So, do you still play squash? Do I still play squash? Um, <laughs> I, I did three weeks ago for a great charity called Squash Busters, which awesome. is something a fantastic man named Greg Zaff started. It, it's one of the be- one of the best charities I've ever worked with. It's getting inner city kids to get familiar with squash, and of course, we then tutor and get them into college. We have a hundred percent success rate. Awesome. Of getting every kid into college. And some of these inner city kids um, are incredible athletes and they pick up squash in a few months and now they play on some of the top teams in the country. Because if you have natural hand eye skill, anyone can learn any sport, right? You just need a mentor. And uh, so, having said that, yes, I played doubles for a day, but previous to that was about a year ago. I was playing and training, coaching my son who, who also played in college. And uh, um, but then it's so unfortunate. COVID, like, right in the middle of his whole college career, it was like two years out. Yeah. So, uh, but I do like. I still enjoy it. It's it's still a great sport to beat, you know, the living daylights out of a ball into a wall. <laughs> so it's, it's a good way. It's a, the other form of meditation, and uh, and helpful. A good outlet too. Yes, a hundred percent. We understand that you actually started your culinary career after uh, getting your degree in engineering. Um, how did you make that transition? So um, 
it, it, it actually was a lot easier than you think, uh, only because, uh, first of all, I'm Chinese, right? And I had three options. I could be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. That was it, right? There was, not, there was no wiggle room with my, with my parents, right? Uh, and that's, just, that's very similar to Jewish families, Chinese families, and all immigrant families, right? You want to go to college and become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And, um, and I was actually decent at math and science in high school. So I'm like, yeah, of course I'll do mechanical engineering. It makes the most sense. My dad's an engineer, all of the above. Um, once I got to college, I should digress that I've cooked since I was six, right? I mean, I've always cooked. Uh, I say this all the time, and it's still true. I am, sorry, I was, still am, and will always be hungry. That's why I'm a chef. It's that simple. (laughs) When I was two and three years old, when as soon as I could stand, I would be in the kitchen, either my grandparents' kitchen watching their cook cook or my parents cooking. Both my parents are really good cooks. And because when you hung out in the kitchen, they would throw you scraps sometimes, a piece of chicken skin or maybe a dumpling that opened up or whatever, right? And so I got the... I got the fascination of cooking early on, smoke and fire and smells, and they actually could eat it. Uh, True story, I was six years old. I'll eventually answer the question, by the way, but I think this is all important. At six, I started playing around with Duncan Hines cake mixes in Dayton, Ohio. And I was fascinated that with a couple eggs, a little bit of oil, a little whatever, and you mix it, and then in 20 minutes, cake. And believe you me, all my friends in the neighborhood would make fun of me because they're out playing stickball and I'm baking a cake. And uh, but it did. My ego was in check. I, I was not worried about what they might have been thinking, because as soon as stickball was over, they would come to the house and says, what's that? I'm like, oh, this is vanilla cake. Like, can I have some? So of course, five cents a slice. So I had a 50 percent EBITDA. I was grossing 50 percent profit at, at six. And uh, so that was a good start. Um same kitchen, four years later, Dayton, Ohio, I'm now 10. And back then you didn't lock your doors, right? This is a different, sure. different era. And uh, we had, um, in Chinese culture, when you meet someone on the street or someone that comes to your door, you actually don't say, chur- you actually don't say ni hama, which is how are you? You actually say churlaba, which means have you eaten? Because if you meet someone on the street or someone comes to your door, that's an opportunity to eat together. So I... Um, we had a couple, uh, Caucasian couple, who I recognized, and everyone was uncle and auntie to us. Um, and, I, and, of course, they're at the door. My parents were not home. My brother wasn't home. I was by myself. I'm 10. And they, they're at the door, and they were just driving through Dayton, Ohio. They're on their way to, I don't know where, Cincinnati or further south. And, and I'm like, are you hungry? And they're like, oh, we're starved. I'm like, great, sit down. I'll make you fried rice. That's all fine and dandy, except I never made fried rice before in my life. But I've seen it made like a hundred times. Um, and I was also decent with the cleaver because I used to sharpen them with my grandfather. My yeah, yeah. So I, I was good with the knife at 10. So every good Chinese household has leftover rice. And for the record, as a, a very controversial change, all five of my cookbooks say use leftover rice. I now cook and preach fresh rice because Din Tai Fung, which is the best Chinese restaurant chain in the world, I watched them make their fried rice, and they had big rice cookers next to their walk, and they're taking hot, fresh rice. So you need much less oil, much less soy. It's just a better fried rice. But having said that, fried rice was created to use over leftover rice. So Chinese household leftover rice. Of course, we have eggs, garlic, ginger, and scallions. That's all you need. Again, chopped it all up, made the fried rice. Honestly, 
a five out of 10 in quality. I used a, too much, a little too much oil because I didn't want it to stick. I used a little too much soy sauce because I'm 10 and I make this thing and I serve it to them. And I, they were amazed because I'm 10. But the thing that happened is they smiled. And I'm like, wait a minute. I can make people happy through my cooking. This is something, and, and I'm decent at it. This is something I don't really think about doing. And then fast forward, I mean, you know, I go to Andover, I go to Yale, I'm studying engineering. I started going to Paris every summer. My dad's partner, uh, Thierry Massard, French, French, lovely Thierry and Pascal, uh, amazing family. They were, they were kidless at the time. My dad has a company called Think Composites. It's a world company that he designs with composite materials. He's literally the foremost designer with graphite materials. His clients are SpaceX, Airbus, Callaway, Ferrari, anyone that uses graphite material. He is 94 July 6th. He just turned 94. He works full-time today. And full-time for him is six days a week because he has everything on his Mac. So on his Apple, he's he's unbelievable. He just got his fourth patent called Double Double, how to build build fuselages cheaper and better and stronger. And I mean, he's 94. It's absurd. That's amazing. and still cooks for my mom. Even though they're in a retirement home, there's buffet in this, he, he still cooks. It's it's amazing. His fortune teller says he's going to live to 104. So I, I don't doubt that for a second. He's he's a stud. And he was a better Iron Chef cook at home. He would open a fridge and boom, chicken chow man on the on the you know table in seven minutes. My mom was a better classic man. This is how you do salt and pepper shrimp for Peking duck. And, and my mom's hands are much better doing dumplings and, and scallion pancakes. Anyway, both are great. I had my epiphany intent. I go to Paris. I start studying, uh, mastering French. I had high school French. You know, Alain Francaise. Actually, <laughs> I will tell the, uh, a quick story. I go to Alain Francaise, which is a, the largest internationals, you know, learn French in Paris. So every nationality is there, right? Everyone but French. The French are teachers. Italians, you know, Chinese, uh, Americans, we're all there. You all meet. Uh, and, and I was pretty good speaking. But reading and writing, subjunctive and prisco parfait, it was not great. So I take the written test. And the next day, you know, I got placed wherever. I walk into the classroom. I'm in like, I'm in like 4C is my rating and what class I'm in. And I walk into the room and the teacher's like, bonjour, bonjour. Like for 20 minutes, bonjour. I'm like, excuse me, I, I, I was not going to, this is so expensive. I was not going to waste my money to learn how to say bonjour, right? So I then... Uh, go uh, oh, so that was the same day i take the test they put me in a class that day and i said this is ridiculous i can't do this so i went back into the testing site because there's 500 people milling around and i swipe a test right i take the test home with my two french friends and their french is incredible because they're french <laughs> and we do the test together right i don't cheat meaning i don't bring the test in with me i memorize as much as i can i take the test again i'm in 1b and I walk into the classroom. Hey, I'm like, perfect. Right. I didn't. Right? And then my motivation, truth be told, where there's these two beautiful Italian girls, women, I don't know, they're 21 in the class, could not communicate. I learned French so quickly. I mean, like, a cafe, a croissant, right? As fast as I could. So that's how I ended up learning French. I did that every summer. I came back junior year. I sat my parents down. They knew I liked to cook. They knew I was, I mean, they were sending me, they knew I was in Paris. And I'm like, guys, look, I'm not going to be an engineer. I, I want to be a chef. And keep in mind, if you've seen my mom on my show, she's incredibly bullying and gregarious. And she steps up and gives me a huge hug and says, son, 
you are so lucky at such a young age, you actually know your passion. Oh. Promise you 110%, we wholly support you. Now, keep in mind, the only way to say my parents, they're just cool parents. They were born in Beijing. I'm first generation. We came over, us Chinese, we built railroads first, right? Then there was the gold rush. Only men, of course, right? No women came over back then. It was only men. Then after the gold rush, there was nothing to do. Chinatown ended up forming in San Francisco because these men, Chinese, we only we couldn't speak English. We could only wash laundry and cook. Those are like the two skill sets that we were good at. And that's how Chinatown formed. So I do pretty good education and I want to be a cook. So, you know, normal Chinese parents would be like, that's a waste of time and money. But they're not like that. My dad, after my mom gave me the hug, I looked over and I'm like, dad, he's like, son, you weren't going to be a very good engineer anyway. Go cook. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> Not, yeah, he didn't sugarcoat, obviously. But the point is so true. If you don't love what you do, you have no chance of being good at it. Forget about being great. You have no chance of being good. And uh, although I can proudly say because of kitchen equipment that I designed on HSN and stuff for six years, I actually did use PV equals NRT and centrifugal force because cooking is chemistry, right? I mean, there's yeah. definitely... Yeah. Yeah, and I'm in altitude here in Montana. So, you know, our water boils at 199. And of course, pastries and all that matter. It's so much different, right? We, our sushi rice we make have to be made in a pressure cooker sushi rice cooker that Zojirushi makes. A regular rice cooker doesn't work for sushi rice. Oh. So things like that. So chemistry does, does, does matter. So that, so that's the, the long answer, Hell, I said, okay, engineering, backdoor, you know, or, or the backside, cooking. I can make people happy through it. Let's do this. That is incredible. One of the questions that we were going to ask is, have you used uh, part of your engineering degree? And it sounds like you have very extensively used it. I uh, I can probably say I have a patent pending on a machine um, that makes my Ming's Bings. So I designed this machine in Taiwan. Uh, any, any frozen food product, and we'll talk about Bings as much as I can in, in a bit, but any frozen food product, if they're handmade, they cost X. You have to get it automated to have any chance of making a gross margin. And I knew that going into Ming's Bings. And ironically, we launched Ming Bings February. COVID started March. Yeah. I would have told you all. I didn't know COVID was starting. Um, and, and, and funny enough, not a bad time to launch a company because every CEO picked up their phone, right? So the top mushroom grower, the top caramelized onion guy, the top uh, Bob's Red Mill for flour. Everyone's sitting by their phone with nothing to do. And they're like, so so it wasn't a bad time to launch a company. Then supply chain issues, of course, we're not the only company. Every company suffers supply chain issues. So there, it's been challenging, but but thank God it, that's worked out. Um, so anyway, so that I mean, we can talk about Ming's Ming's later. But, but the engineering part of designing this machine, um, you can't patent a recipe. You add a little bit more soy sauce, new recipe. You can patent process. So I have a certain particular way to make a bing to create five and three layers on the top and bottom. Uh, as you guys know, if you make an empanada, you fold, 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 fold. Top has four layers, bottom has one layer. In freezing, the, the one layer cracks. So I needed to develop a multi-layer folding technique, and I did that, and then I automated that. So, so in that instance, Troy, the, uh, the engineering degree did, did come into play. Um, please don't ask my GPA. My <laughs> senior year was D is for diploma. So there you go. <laughs> I have a diploma. We'll leave it at that. Duly noted. 
you studied in France under Pierre Hermé, right? Mm -hmm. Amazing. Do you uh, still keep in touch or do you still use a lot of that learning? I learned, I mean, Pierre Hermé, I just saw him at Boku's door. So I'm probably part of Team USA and Boku's doors are, Boku's door for those who don't know is the Culinary Olympics. 20 nations send their best chef to compete head on head. It's an unbelievable event when you go and, and it's created, it was created by uh, Paul Bocuse, Monsieur Paul, who's in heaven now. Uh, Lyon is really the gastronomic capital of France and that's why it's held there. And, and it's amazing. Paul Bocuse wanted to bring all countries together to see which country had the best for more camaraderie. It wasn't like France is the best or China or Japan or US. Um, but it was really to just bring people together, to unite people through food. And, and, and Monsieur Paul was just unbelievable. The most revered chef probably ever in France. I mean, he literally he held three Michelin stars forever. And, and, and he, the only chef in front of his flagship restaurant, Bocuse, he had a, France, a French flag and a USA flag. Because during World War II, he was injured and he ended up, he, got, he went to an American hospital and got blood and it was an American blood. So he always claims he's half American because he actually has American blood in him. And he was very controversially said almost 20 years ago, the torch has been passed. The Amer USA has the best food in the world now. He said that in the Figaro, the French newspaper. And he got a lot of crap wow. for that. You can believe that. But I he believed it. But, and then he started, he, he pulled Jerome Bocuse, his son, Thomas Keller, one of our best chefs ever, and Daniel Belude, also French and you know, obviously in the U.S., pulled the three of them inside and said, you guys, you should be the best culinary team in the world. You have the best food. But, and, and the problem, our challenge is the government doesn't support Team USA. Other governments in other countries wholly support it. And it's not just a hundred, it's over a million dollar budget to get these people to train and train and train. And, uh, and Monsieur Paul, uh, before he passed, got to see Team USA win gold. And I, and I happened to be there. That was my first time there. And it was just, I mean, you know, I've never been an Olympic athlete and never, you know, I do represent USA, you know, when I do cook, but to be there and have Team USA actually win a gold medal was, was unbelievable. That really was a very special moment. So Pierre Hermé was there and I got to chat with him. He, for those that don't know, probably today still the most amazing pastry chef alive. He, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, he was famous for his chocolate work and blowing sugar, right? So when you blow sugar, if you've never done it before, it's screeching hot. And I have chef hands, right? So I'm like, this is nothing. You touch the sugar, it's 100 degrees more than you should be touching, right? It just, it's, and what you do is you make, you, you color your sugar. So you make blue sugar or what's, and then you put a straw in it and you blow it up. So then you can, of course, make an apple or a pear or whatever. He was commissioned to make a Mickey Mouse. Because at the time, France was trying to get Euro Disneyland, right? They didn't, Spain was, Italy was, everyone in Euro Disneyland. So the French government, which is Place Madeleine, is, you know, it's right there. Invalide is right there. It's like, we need a huge Mickey Mouse in your window to help say France loves Mickey. So he spent a week blowing up Mickey Mouse, right? And it's perfect, right? Again, you color the sugar, you don't paint it, right? So gigantic Mickey Mouse, I don't know, probably three and a half feet tall, perfect black ears, blue, you know, red, you guys all know the Mickey looks like, yeah. immaculate. He puts it in the back room by all the walk-in freezers because you need to let it dry out for two days before you put it in the window because there's sun hitting it. It could melt and fade. So it's back there for two days. 
I am one of 22 pastry cooks. I'm the lowest on the totem pole. And I'm going to the freezer because that's the way I have all our cookies and stuff, sablés to go. And there's Mickey. And I don't know what compelled me. I'm like, God, I wonder if it's dry. And I touch his belly. And there's my thumbprint this big on Mickey Mouse's belly that Pierre M.A. just spent a week on making, right? And it's like, want to get out of town? I mean, it was like, I want to get out of this world. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm looking around. No one sees it, right? I, I mean, I couldn't think straight. And that night, I didn't sleep a wink. I'm like, is he going to line us all up? And basically, like, in French, just, who, you know, what idiot touched my thing? And it was, a, it was my print. And I'm like, or should I burn my thumbprints? Or should I cut my thumbprints? chef. No, c'est pas moi. No, no. I mean, and he didn't see it. It got in the window. Uh, but I just so surprisingly, fast forward, I'm in Blue Ginger. Uh, and we opened in 98. This is probably 2008. The hostess calls down to me. I'm in my office like, uh, there's some Pierre Hermé coming in tonight. I'm like, excuse me, wait, what, what? He goes, yeah, Pierre Hermé. I'm like, are you sure? He goes, yeah, he's doing something at the architectural school at Harvard. And he says he's coming in tonight. I'm like, okay. I still didn't believe it. I'm in Wellesley, Mass, right? I'm 20 miles west of Boston. And this is the most amazing pastry chef in the world. And I, I was lowest. I didn't even know he remembered me. But for some reason through... I, Either a friend or he saw my show or something. He walked in with two of his two Harvard guys. My pastry chef's like, I cannot believe Pierre May's walk. We fed him everything possible. I mean, he got like, like 12 desserts. I mean, my pastry chefs were just beyond. And so, I mean, so humble honor for me, obviously. And I told him the story. And I had to, because I had to, I had, you know, I was like, Father, I have sinned. I had, I touched Nick. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he never knew, and he's like, "It doesn't matter. <laughs> we we got we got Disney anyway." So oh, good. That's got you at Disney, right? So yeah, so that was that many years later. You got that off your shoulders. Yeah, finally. Yeah, <laughs> I got to get another forty things off my chest, but we'll work on that. That's okay. <laughs> so you have written, you've written some incredible cookbooks, and they've inspired many people to go out there and cook. Um, what do you feel has been the thing about you and your shows that has brought so many people in? Wow, that's a great question. Um, as you can tell, I, I am who I am. I don't act, right? So when I'm on TV, it's just me, right? I don't, yeah. I don't need, uh, not that other people need gimmicks, but I don't, I don't need it. I'm just a chef. I'm a cook, honestly. And, and I've always loved to teach, right? I used to teach kids tennis when I was younger. And I, I've always loved younger kids for that reason. Of course, I have two that are no longer younger. They're 23, 21. Um, but that idea of mentoring and teaching was always in my blood. And when you're a chef, that's basically what you do 24-7. And when you do a cooking show, you're doing the same thing. Um, but you're simplifying it, right? Because I really, truly want people to cook my food, right? I, I want people to... Not, I should take that back. Not cook my food. I really want people to learn how to cook. So one of my goals of Simply Ming was always to show the techniques. And I always say, hey, if you like it spicy, add jalapenos. If you don't like tomatoes, take the tomatoes out. If the salmon is not that fresh because you actually listen to me and you smell your fish before you buy it, buy the best smelling fish. The recipe is the same. You can go from salmon to swordfish to cod easily. Um and ditto if the, if the recipe calls for mangoes, but the mangoes are rock hard, use the sweet-smelling pineapple. So that's what I'm trying to teach more, not necessarily follow my recipe to the T, although I think my recipes do work well. 
But if you can learn techniques, sauteing, grilling, say how you hold a knife, how you do an onion, then you actually start cooking. Use the use all. I think recipe, you know, cookbooks are awesome. I I have a ton of them, as you can imagine. And but I don't think I've ever cooked a recipe exactly out of a book. No, actually, I can tell you that. The actually one of the only times my wife and I fight, if it's fighting, is I did it for my parents too. My parents would fight in Chinese about you know. Like, like, no, you got to fry the shrimp first and you add this and they would fight. And I'm like, guys, 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 I got it. And then they would sit down and be drinking a glass of wine and I'm cooking. And they finally realized they're like, Cling! I'm like, wait a minute. You just want me to cook. You weren't. <laughs> 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 um, Thank you for that like, secret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my wife, who is a good cook, right? She cooked a lot for the kids. She likes Barefoot Contessa, Martha Stewart, all those good cookbooks, great cookbooks, and my cookbooks too. But she will buy and exactly like the recipe, which is as do millions of people in this country. But what ends up happening, of course, you know, once she likes me to do the garlic and the onions because, you know, I'm a chef, so I'm faster. But quite often I'll come back and she'll have all her ingredients out, right? And it's a whatever, a salmon dish with, with a Thai basil noodle salad, right? And they, they could see everything out there. And then eventually she looks over to me because she knows I like to cook, obviously. I'm like, hey, honey, you want me to do that? She's like, sure, sure. So I just jump in and I start cooking. I'm an iron chef, so I start cooking. And she goes, wait, 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 wait. I in a garden says, I'm like, honey, I in a garden? I can figure out how to cook these ingredients as an iron chef. So I don't go flying hoot right now what Ina Garden says. Right? <laughs> and I admire the crap out of Ina Garden and Martha Stewart. They're amazing people. Oh, but so a moment in time with the ingredients in front of me, I can figure this out. Pretty <laughs> true story. True story. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I will say that when uh, I, I was in culinary school back in 2006, 2007, and I stumbled across your show, um, Ming's Quest, and so on. And uh, I, I would sit down, because I was just getting started in the whole culinary thing. I would sit down with a notebook, and I would take notes, because I didn't have VCR at the time. We didn't right. have, you know, DVRs and everything else. I still have, like, a three-ring binder full of my notes from watching, like, the original Iron Chef, you know, with uh, Chef uh, Sakai and uh, all of those guys. And yes, yeah, no yeah, more. yes, um, amazing, just absolutely mind blowing. And I, I'm scribbling notes the whole time as fast as I possibly could. And then, you know, it, it occurred to me after a while that, like you said, it's really techniques, and you know, just using your the creative part of your brain, saying, oh, uh, you know what pineapple is as good as mango if we're trying to get that sweet citrusy yep. so on and so forth so fabulous uh, well that's great josh i appreciate that i'd love to see that notebook one day maybe i could relearn some stuff at my age i forget a lot uh, although muscle memory thank god we don't forget right and, right. and right. how things taste and smell you actually don't forget right the olfactory system is amazing your nose actually is the memory Right. You remember your grandma's right. moth coated jacket. You can remember that, that, the, you know, cho tofu, stinky tofu in the night market in Taichung. Right. You can remember smells and that that actually what the scientists say. That's what, you know, you all your memories is smell first and then eventually visual and some sound. Hmm. And uh, 
Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's amazing where um, cooking can still go with all this new technology, right? And uh, the good news for us chefs is even with all this AI, ChatGPT, all these things, you can't replace a restaurant dining experience, right? Being there with the energy, people bringing you drinks and food and all that. I think that's irreplaceable. Uh, you can have private chefs, you can do it in your own home, but you can't have a hundred other people in the energy, the feel, the sound, the noise. So fortunately for us chefs, you know, that experience can't be replaced. Of course, you can deliver everything now, right? Freshly, you get boxes, prep food, and sort of there. So restaurants are, have challenges because a lot of people, you know, COVID proved that we can all cook. Everyone can cook, actually. COVID, COVID created out of a, what do we have in our country? 300 million, probably 100 million cooks that didn't know they could cook. Everyone can cook. Some are better than others, right? And COVID made it a necessity. You had to learn how to cook. And uh, so that actually was a great boon, I think, for cooking shows and people buying stuff and, and learning how to cook. And, you know, it's it's there's at MIT, Daniel Balut teamed up with these guys that made robot walks, right, called Spices, the company. And they've now been bought out by Sweet Greens and Sweet Greens has some warm bowls now. So so robots are playing a role. It's still not going to replace the restaurant dining experience, thank God. Um, but I do think there's some very cool stuff coming down the pike for cooking shows and media with cooking. I just did something recently at a, at a, a expo called All AWE. It was the Alternative World Expo, which I'd never been to. It was in Santa Clara. It was all the big people. I was there with Dell and a, a company called Kitsch. Kitsch is a video streaming platform for us chefs. And I did the first kind of AR VR cooking show. It was just a demo tape, but you would put glasses on. And it was a MR, meaning multi-reality. Um, so you could actually see the cutting board in my hand. That was real time. But then up through your glasses, you saw the ingredients on this side. And you saw other stuff like timers that you could grab. And you could set the time for 12 minutes because it's caramelized onions to make the bang. Um, that was pretty cool. So that, you know, hardware is here. Software's got to catch up. And then eventually, you know, there's, I mean, we, we started brainstorming where this could go. And they can, they now have cameras these contraptions, like 130 cameras that can take videotape every one of your moves, just like the dots on a golfer or, you know, baseball, yeah. you can see the exact swing. Well, now mm -hmm. they have cameras. You don't need to put the dots on now, but imagine you can record every single thing I do with a zucchini. There's, there's only 10 ways to cut a zucchini, honestly, right? There's half moons, julienne spaghetti, same for onions, same for all vegetables. Everyone on this call, this, this zoom or this podcast, we, we cook about 10 or 12 vegetables ever, right? I mean, every now and then you bring in uh, chayote, but in general, carrot, celery, onions, right? Beans, that's it. Dinner for protein, right? We eat fish and it could, it's going to be salmon, cod, swordfish, or whatever, shrimp, lobster, and we eat chicken and that. So imagine if you spent however long it would take shooting every single movement that I do with a chicken. So how you break a chicken down, how you make chicken dice, chicken strips, this. Then trans and shoot every single movement cooking, adding scallops, seasoning, everything. And it, it can shoot it to a tenth of a millimeter, right? I mean, it's just exact. Now with, with technology, you know the big scam. You can copy in anyone's voice. So now the grandson's calling the grandfather, says, I'm in jail, I need $500, send me to Western Union. That's a real scam. And grandparents are falling for it because it's their grandson. It's horrible, right? But it's, it's real. And then, of course, you can make the image as well, exactly like a president of the United States talking, saying whatever. That, that is here now. So imagine if you can have a chef 
avatar that it, we recorded every single movement and you put your glasses on and you open your fridge and you see chicken and cauliflower you see your hot sauces you've already programmed that i am a low sodium diet and i love spicy uh, and i love at least 50 percent vegetables that's my profile you've also looked at all your spice cabinet pantry so you know you have beans and couscous and whatever so once by looking at it the computer the ai will generate the recipe you're gonna have a spicy chicken cauliflower with lemon and then me the avatar will cook it live with that person because every step's already been recorded and i cook a cauliflower spicy lemon chicken stir fry live with that person that's that's cool that this will take three to five years probably but the hardware is already there for wow. that right that's no. a little mind-blowing but yeah. yeah i mean there's yeah it's I, I think it's super cool and yeah and, and that translates to everything. I mean, sport, I mean, just anything, all the DIY, DIY, anything you can learn with hands, you can, you can emulate. You want DIY, do it yourself. Yes. DIY. It's so nice because for me, like I have, I never used to follow recipes and yeah, I know. Um, but my partner has really gotten me to start following the recipes and start using things like YouTube videos. But even with YouTube videos, sometimes it's not the full experience. So having something like that in your kitchen with you, that, that would be mind blowing for me. Yeah. Um, I want to take just a moment and I don't want to ignore it. Uh, Doug is actually in our chat right now and he would like to know who are some of your favorite chefs and why? Doug, my brother-in-law, Fogley. Hello, yes. Fogley. Um, who are some of my favorite chefs? Well, I've already mentioned four of them, mom, dad, and grandparents, right? They're, they're obviously my favorite cooks. Um, so my first mentor was a gentleman named Ken Hom. And Ken Hom is probably, I mean, he's probably, yeah, 80 years old now. He was one of the fathers of East-West cuisine. Uh, very similar in the sense that he's, he was not similar that he has East and West training. He was born in Hong Kong, learned how to cook Chinese food like me, although I was born in Newport Beach, learned how to cook Chinese food. He then became a Francophile. He fell in love with France and as did I, and he started blending, uh, East and West together. And when I first started doing that, I called it Chinese cuisine. Thank God that name didn't stick. French Chinese, not a great name. Uh, he came up with East West and. My first chef job in the U.S., besides the Mandarin Kitchen, which when I was 14, 15, 16, and I got hired because I was the son, right? So no, I had no credentials. I was just the son. I was the janitor, rice cooker, dishwasher, manager. She trusted me with money, at least. So that was nice. Um, uh, the, when, I, when I got to France, just like when Ken, your eyes opened up like, oh, my God, the French can cook, too. It's not just Chinese food. And so... After doing, after I cooked in France for a while, after graduating from college, I then did Cornell, right? Got a master's in the hotel school. Cause again, being Chinese education is still job one. So I, I knew, I knew that going to Cornell would open doors and make connections. I also wanted to learn what a PL statement was and what marketing was. I was a good cook, but I didn't know anything else about a business. So I figured let's do the hotel. Let's work in the hotel business because it's other people's money. Let's make all your rookie mistake. I was the assistant F&B, food and beverage director, possibly the worst job ever created in mankind because you're, back then I think I was paid $28,000. If anything went wrong at 5 a.m. in room service, 
my fault. If anything went on at midnight at the Cafe 525, my fault. And when we opened, I literally worked like 30 days straight and 16-hour days. And I'm, I'm not looking for violins, but it was just brutal. And it became whoever kissed up to the GM the most would get promoted. I'm like, this is not for me. I don't want to do this rat race. Plus, I just missed cooking, right? I cooked my entire life, two years in France. I was just with Pierre Maine. I'm crunching Excel spreadsheets. I'm like, I got to get back in the kitchen. And luckily, Ken Hom was a consulting chef at, at Silks of the Maine Oriental. It was just announced he was a consulting chef and they were looking for sous chefs. And I immediately applied and, 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 and luckily got the job. And another luck was Ken Oranger, who's literally my best chef friend, also got a job. So both of us came in as sous chefs. And bluntly, he was a better cook than me. He, he already cooked at River Cafe and had much deeper experience in, in the French. Uh, even though I was in France for a year and a half, to almost two years, he already cooked like four years. Um, he ended up getting promoted to chef de cuisine, ran dinner, and I was a sous chef for lunch. And I got to bond with Ken. And he's like, stick to this food. Everyone's going to be doing East-West because the world is getting smaller. Everyone can get lemongrass now. Everyone can get tiger shore, right? All the world is smaller, but you have to, and this is what he instilled into me, but you have to honor the cuisine, the Thai cuisine, the Korean cuisine, the Japanese cuisine. Learn how the Chinese treat sesame oil and how the Thais treat lemongrass. Learn, learn the correct, proper way to then earn the right to then blend it into the Western French and American cuisine. Because what ended up happening is just because you can take peanut butter and escargot and put it together doesn't mean you should, right? A lot of people are creating food because it's never been created before. But maybe there's a reason that dish has never been created before because you just took 17 different things and blended it in like, oh, Wonder Bar vinaigrette. But you put in hoisin sauce plus miso plus Thai bird chilies plus because you could because you have access to it. And it just tastes horrible because you don't understand that we use this much sesame oil in Chinese cooking, right? We maybe put a tablespoon and two quarts of chicken broth. But I've had great chefs that I've known, not to mention, they'll use sesame oil on a carpaccio plate like it's olive oil, and you taste sesame oil for four more courses, right? It's way too strong. So again, learn traditionally how all these cuisines treat their own store, buy, prep, all that, then blend it. Because the worst food in the world is actually not bad Chinese food or, or bad American food. It's bad confusion food because we call it fusion although i hate the name personally because fusion is like forcing atoms to create nuclear energy you know my <laughs> food or east west food is more blending right we're trying to blend eastern and western techniques and ingredients but when someone doesn't know what they're doing confusion food is just the worst possible thing you could do confusion confusion yes you mentioned earlier knives i'm sure because you're a chef you have favorite knives do you travel with them? Tell us about your knives. Um, oh, yeah, I have. Uh, I have more cookbooks than knives. So that's good because I have like 500, 800 cookbooks. That would be really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one company that I love to death uh, and I'm not paid by them. Um, I use a, a lot of their knives is Corin, K-O-R-I-N, Corin, like the beer. Uh, Corin, yeah. as I And um, they... They uh, have beautiful Japanese knives. They have, they have their main store in New York City. And um, Saori, who's the owner, is just a lovely Japanese lady. He's always supported me with Simply Ming and would give me knives to give to my chefs that came on my show. And, you know, they're, 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 the Japanese knives are some of the best knives made in the world. They really are. And they're very specific, right? This is only for sashimi. This is only for butchering. This is only for slicing and, and whatnot. The Santuko, right, the kind of mini cleaver, 
is my go-to favorite because like a cleaver, you can pick stuff up and put it into your walk, whatever. Um, but because, and because the blade's like that big, you have a lot of surface area to do that. And they're super sharp. Um, I do travel. If I'm, if I'm doing an event, I travel with my knives hundred percent. Uh, quite often though, I, cause I just not that patient for checking bags. I will just, I'll just use knives. If it's just, if it's a one day event, it doesn't matter if it's iron chef, I bring this toolbox, right? <laughs> it's four doors and a lid. And that has literally every tool I need to do something fast. So some specific things like, you know, like a three hole funnel that could do three pair of lines for sauce and, and, um, different types of peelers so I can get, you know, super long zest or super, and, uh, you know, and a wasabi grater for fresh wasabi. So I have all my little tricks and tools in there. Sushi mat, of course, because you just don't know now you what's going to come up and you have to have. And then I have at least, um, I don't know, probably 10 knives in there, right? Because you need, you need cleaver on down. You got to go through bone sometimes and you always need a paring knife for, for small work. Uh, a knife, a board, and a good pan. That's all you need. But you have to have a sharp knife because you cut yourself with a dull knife, never with a sharp, not never with a sharp knife, but worse cuts are with a dull knife because it slips on the tomato. Then you get yourself definitely get a good cutting board, which needs to be wood or bamboo. All the, the, the linoleum, one, right? The white ones, NSF, ironically, they claim they're the safest. But when you cut into these white boards, moisture stays in it and therefore bacteria stays in it as opposed to wood and bamboo it dries out and without water bacteria can't form. So the wooden boards are actually safer and bamboo is the safest because there's actual a natural antibacterial quality to bamboo. Uh, and it's the best for your knife. If you ever cut on a glass board or a marble board, you just please go back to go back home. Don't do that. It pains me every time I see friends using a, a glass cutting board oh, no 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 it's, don't do that it's like, it's like fingernails on chalkboard to me yeah right? yep so bad. and you do need a good pan it doesn't have to be a walk but it's so important to have a good pan that that is thick enough to retain heat so even the thin walks they're no good because once you put the recipe in it goes you no longer the right it just braids you end up braising your beef and broccoli right so that's so key and and no one at home myself included have a sixty thousand. BTU burner at home, right? That's actually illegal. We, I do it outside because you can get the set set up. And because of that, your wok is not going to stay hot. So my recommendation always in my books is if you don't have a big flame, do half of the recipe, then the other half. So like sear half the meat, then sear the next half of the meat. Because if you put all the meat in, it just, you're just braising and you lose all the effect of wok stirring, which is super fast, high, keep the vegetables crispy, keep the meat seared. And, uh, but that's why I have a cooking show. That's what I like right. to teach. <laughs> You have five cookbooks. Do you, if you give them as gifts or if someone needs a cookbook and you're going to give them one, is there one that you find yourself giving the most or recommending uh, the most? Um, I think the one I have tons of them. I don't know if I have any here. Uh, one, the simply mean one pot, one pot meals, I think is the easiest for home cooks and it is one pot right or one sheet tray or one braising dish so super easy cleanup um and very affordable uh, uh dishes which i think is important this day and age right it, it's hard it's hard to go out to dinner if you have two kids and, and you know a spouse 
you're, you're yeah. spending 80 bucks, 100 bucks, depending on where you're going. Even the, even the mid-tier restaurants are, you know, they're trying to give you two apps and an entree for 24 nights. Still, you're still going to spend so much more money than if you cooked yourself. So I think that that's the most fun to cook out of and people have by far the best results. My favorite is still blue ginger because it's my first, right? It's just like my first son is much nicer than my second son. I'm, that's okay. <laughs> my first wife is fantastic and she's my only wife. So there you go. Um, my first book, my first cookbook, it was, it's just a big deal when you finally get your cookbook out as a chef. You know, it was a very proud moment to, to get that out there. And, uh, and that's called Blue Ginger after, obviously, our first restaurant. And, uh, but that has, you know, that has foie gras morel shumai and just so not something you're going to eat on a Tuesday, right? And, and uh, you know, of course, like my miso sake made butterfish and the crispy calamari. So all the Blue Ginger restaurant dishes, that is so easy to do when you have 10 cooks. So that's, so you please note that. But yeah, one pot meals, I think, is a great one. Okay. And that's really good for me and kind of along the lines of that, that one pot and uh, really nice for people who are cooking at home. Um, what we notice about a lot of your plates is that they are so artistically done. There's such an incredible presentation for those that are cooking at home. Um, what recommendations do you have to improve the way that, uh, their meals are presented? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I do. I never think when I create a new dish, I never think I want it to look pretty or I want it to be these five colors because it's the ingredients chooses the dish. Right. So for me, it's like, uh, you know, I love fennel and salmon. And, you know, we have this great Norwegian salmon running now and it's, you know, inexpensive. OK, so, so I'm thinking salmon. Then I just think of all the great things in season. Right. You should not be using tomatoes in the winter. I mean, canned tomatoes with tomato sauce, 100% all day long. But why would you have a tomato carpaccio salad or something in the winter? They're hothouse grown. That's not how the person upstairs created seasons, right? To cook to the seasons. And so we have salmon and we're, what, we're in fall. So we have beautiful mushrooms and we have, we're you know, a little bit hardier and, and it's getting chill in the air. So then I'm thinking, you know, I would like to drink Pinot Noir. So this is going through my head to creating a salmon dish. And then I would literally at the market, you'd be like, oh my God, look at this morels, which is my whole, my family Talbots days ago, moreling in Michigan all the time. And then, then of course I think of, okay, how do I make it mine? Which is, okay, well, we're gonna start with garlic, ginger. I want this a little bit spicy, but not too spicy because people that love salmon, like not as crazy spicy, like a chipino, like a chipino spicy. It's a little bit of red pepper flake. And then I'm thinking, okay, since it's fall, let's make it brothy. So maybe this lemon verbena with lemongrass would be a kind of a great lemony type broth. And that's how I kind of create the dish. And then once I have all the components, I just plate it. I don't think about, I want the salmon at 12 o'clock or I want this. I just naturally just plate it. And usually it looks good because of the ingredients I chose, right? Like, I don't think I ever bought flowers, right? All the edible flowers that people buy and spend a ton of money on because they just look good. Now, there are some beautiful microgreens and micro shiso. And my, those are awesome because they taste like, you know, these, these buzz buds, these little like baby citron peppercorns that just make your mouth. They have a reason to be there, not just it's pretty. So I would never put something on a plate because it's pretty. I hate when I see like a thyme sprig and a rosemary sprig if it's not in the dish. If it's thyme marinated lamb rack, then go ahead and throw a thyme sprig. Sometimes chefs just put stuff. Oh, I need a little red in the plate. 
That doesn't make sense to a chef. What do you mean you need red? If you need bell peppers for the sweetness, fine. But just to put something red on the plate because you want to look more red, chefs don't do that, right? So um, now to answer your, your direct question, Troy, having trained in Japan, um, that simplicity of less is more is also always in my mind when I'm plating. Right. I don't want 12 things on a plate. You just you, you shouldn't need 12 things on a plate. Right. It's protein, starch, maybe a veg, sauce one, sauce two, and then where's your texture? I always think about texture, right? Where's your crunch? Because you can't just have smooth, smooth, smooth. It's just that's not what your mouth wants. Your mouth wants crunchy and smooth. And usually your mouth wants hot and cold. So I love like a like a banana split, maybe a perfect bite. Cold ice cream, hot fudge, crunchy nuts, right? It has everything your mouth wants. And, and that's that's kind of my mindset. I, I will say something you just said. There's um, it, something that goes through my head all the time when I'm when I'm cooking and, you know, we're hosting, you know, folks making dishes for people is I'm always searching for that perfect bite. Like you just said that the, the combination of, like you said, hot, cold, crunchy, smooth, whatever it happens to be always questing after that that one perfect bite. So I'll tell you, do you want to hear my best bite ever story? Yeah. Yes. Hello, it's Emily, the host and creator of the Modern Romantic Podcast. I just wanted to interrupt really quickly to say thank you so much for your support. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the likes and comments and follows. Thank you for sharing with your friends and family and fellow artists and your positive reviews on podcast platforms are not lost on us. We see every one. So we appreciate you and thank you again for joining us. It's a, it's a doozy. So I'm with my girlfriend, Polly, now wife at the time. We were not rich we were in france so we're not poor we got to france but we're staying we're staying in Rennes. Rennes is spelled reams but pronounced events is that bad luck having a black cat going right in front of us <laughs> just she's, asking for a friend she's uh-huh. trying Dang. to be on the show i guess <laughs> well, we made it and uh so we're staying at hotel rinky dink for a hundred a night because we had to save our money to eat at lake creere lake creere is uh gerard gerard boyer three-star michelin restaurant um just like out of the hollywood set you're talking about pine tree line augusta like fairway perfect grass at the very end a gigantic white chateau right this is where the restaurant was and i was so excited to to eat at the gerard boyer's signature dish and luckily ken ham who i was cooking with at the time at silks one of the best things Ken ever did for my life and career was introduce me to copious amounts of black truffles. So we did a truffle promotion, a pay bear truffle promotion at Silks. Um, the first winter he was there, truffles come out usually the January, February, and they're when they're perfect. And we brought he brought like a kilo of these black truffles in. And uh, and Jacques Paybear is uh, he's in heaven now but he was a father he was selling black truffles to gerard de robuchon daniel you know tight tom scale daniel everyone and and uh Kaur is where he's located it's a little south of perigo perigo so all the truffles are known for but Kaur actually has a better one anyway 
he ends up, and I didn't know this, he called Gerard Boyer because he's been selling truffles to him for years and said, hey, look after my sous chef friend, Ming, right? I'm a I'm like a dishwasher compared to Gerard Boyer, right? I mean, come on. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sous chef at a restaurant, nothing like his, his restaurant. I didn't know he called. But anyway, we get there at lunch. We have our beautiful glass of champagne. They, they have tasting menu. And by the way, one suggestion, if you ever go to, if you want to go to beautiful restaurants, this is New York or France or whatever, go for lunch. It's usually cheaper. It's the same cooks, same chefs, same everything. It's just usually less expensive and you're usually not rushed. And you get all day to walk around after you just had that delicious 7, 8, 10, 12 course meal, right? So that, that's what we're doing. We're having our lunch. And they had a menu, but his signature dish wasn't on the menu. So I asked the maitre d'is anyway, Chef Boyer could make his signature dish, which is a golf ball-sized pay bear truffle wrapped in foie gras mousse, wrapped in puff pastry, baked in the oven, served crisp and hot in a sauce perigord, in a truffle sauce. Back then, it was $100 a plate, right? And we're talking, this is nine, This is 94. Yeah, so a long time ago. So 100 bucks a plate is probably 500 now. Anyway, the maitre d' comes back and says, chef, we'd be, would be happy to make that for you. I'm like, oh, my God, thank God. So we're eating our meal. Everything's delicious, right? And I'm, we're like a glass of the half of champagne. In. So it's not, you know, there wasn't anything drunk or anything. But what I did next, you would question it. So the dish shows up. He sends two of them out, right? My wife gets one. I, oh, sorry, my girlfriend gets one. I get one. And I do have this theory on food that you have to eat it at its peak. So if you don't eat your French fries in 15 seconds, you blew it because those other half of those French fries stink, right? And, and so that's at least my excuse why all chefs eat so quickly. And we do. And half the time we're eating standing up anyway. So I take a bite of this truffle thing. And I like, I had it. They call it the food high, the food orgasm, the food epiphany, the food whatever. My mind just went, oh, my God, you could make food taste this good. I never knew that you could make something this just revelatory. So I gobble mine up and I'm looking at my wife and, you know, it's a rich dish. So she's like a third of hers. And she's like, you know, you want to help me? for this? Like, yeah, I do. So I eat hers. So I, so I eat 1.67 balls of love. Right. And I'm so high. I actually excuse myself from the table so I could have a moment by myself. She was just my girlfriend. I didn't know it was life partner. I wanted to enjoy this. And if I smoked cigarettes, I would have fired one up, but I don't smoke cigarettes. So I'm walking through this beautiful Relais Chateau hotel where the restaurant was located, which the rooms were, I don't know, a thousand or two thousand a night. There's a marble staircase and cherry wood door frame and the beautiful front. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, that's an unbelievable bite. And I walk into the restroom and I see this, you know, again, ornately carved door frame. There's the men's room. And I look down the hallway and like 15, 20 feet is the bar where Gerard Boyer with his beautiful wife, Martine, were having an espresso. So I'm like, oh, I have to go tell the chef. And this is like if you're a singer, you're meeting Bono, right? I mean, if you're, this is the, you're, you, you throw the football, you're meeting Brady, right? This is like a big effing deal, right? So I go to the bathroom. I'm like, I wash up. I'm getting, you know, as good as I could possibly look, right? I make sure there's no truffle in my teeth. And I take four steps towards him. And here's another beautifully ornately carved door frame for the women's room. And I stop. I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to want to visit the kitchen after, as I always do, because I want to see how kitchens look like. And he's having a moment with his wife. And he's a three-star Michelin chef, so I shouldn't bother him. 
I'm going to see him later. So I turn this way to go through the door frame. The last thought is, hey, another tall Chinese bear. I run into a full length mirror. I run into myself just straight in. And the chef comes running over and I speak French, but you can't. He's like, he's like, I'm holding my nose. And at that moment in life, you either bust out laughing or you bust out crying. Right. So I just bust out laughing and I go back to the table. And I tell Polly, and I, first I said, I just met this chef. She says, that's awesome. I said, I just ran into an effing mirror. She's like, what? She gets her Instamatic Kodak camera, goes to the mirror, takes a picture of the two grease marks my nose and forehead left on the mirror. And, and she presented to me later. It's like, yeah, well, you'll make it one day, but remain humble and watch out for those mirrors. <laughs> the worst part, if you think this isn't bad enough, the worst part is, of course, I couldn't go visit the kitchen. I can't be like the guy that just ran into a mirror guy. So I didn't. I did not get to see the kitchen. And then the maitre d' just rubbed soy sauce in my salt, in my wound. And uh, and after he paid the bill, he goes, Monsieur, that happens all the time, which is a complete lie. People do not run into full-length mirrors all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the truffle dish that put me in that state of mind. I, I wish I said I was six champagne glasses in. No, it was only a glass and a half. <laughs> it was that food high. I was like, oh, my God. So, yeah, that. So I've not, but I've not hit a mirror since. So I have learned. <laughs> so there's that. That's fabulous. <laughs> that is quite a perfect bite experience. <laughs> yes, it was. I hope never to achieve that part again. Just the bite. <laughs> Just the bite. <laughs> the bite's fun. The bite's fun. Um. So when uh, you've talked about Ming's Bangs and that creation process, and yep. before we kind of get into Ming's Bangs, um, what part of the any part of the creative process that you do, um, what do you get most excited about? It's really, it's really seeing other people enjoying the food, right? Uh, I've always had open kitchens because I want to see people eating the food. And the best thing is this, right? The nod. When they take a bite, don't say a thing. They kind of close their eyes a little bit and just nod. That's the best compliment you could ever get. The worst compliment you ever get a chef, a chef comes out, how was everything? And say, oh, interesting. If someone says interesting, it was a horrible meal. <laughs> yep, it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. How was your date? Interesting. Yeah, that date thing. <laughs> personality, mom, right? That thing. Um, yeah, and I, but I mean, I think that's why we're in the hospitality business. That's why chefs are chefs, right? We want to share and make people happy through food. And, and it's an amazing type of job, right? Musicians have it, artists have it, but honestly, cooking it's for us it's instantaneous i see the dish go out and i see it come back clean or dirty i see the people nodding or not you know the grateful dead they don't know that i've listened to that song 50 times right because they're not there they of course in a live concert they can see fifty thousand people having a great time and that's that's like a restaurant but when you listen to a cd or, or you listen on your ipod uh, that's you have no idea so when you see a matisse matisse isn't enjoying the fact that you're enjoying that beautiful painting plus he's in heaven obviously but food is so instant gratification yep. and everyone either likes or doesn't like that bite there's no in between i, mean, I guess i can say it's so so but but everyone has their own palate and of course some palates are better than others right i always say that if someone takes a bite of mings bings when i'm at a grocery store and i jokingly i'm like you i really hope you like it but you may not because not everyone has a great palate you know, something. <laughs> I don't know how your parents cooked. They may have been horrible. And, uh, um, but, but that, I think the, the, the real satisfaction 
is that is, is spreading the joy and seeing and seeing people because you can change someone's mindset in a restaurant in a second right they're really pissed off at this or the boyfriend or the husband or the job or whatever you sit down you have a nice bite and a nice cocktail a glass of wine you can just be like okay life can't be that bad i'm in this restaurant getting served great food right and because it is it's not just it's not like buying an iphone it's not just a thing you're you're living it and and how and how you are feeling absolutely affects how your meal goes Right, especially for the significant other or whoever else is there and whatnot. But if you're like in a really bad mood, you know, food doesn't always get people out of it sometimes. Um, but but I do think for all of us chefs, and I just saw Jose Andres on on GMA or today one of the shows. Um, we also have a an inherent responsibility to give back. Right, we have a platform of creating food, and. And I'm, I know you guys all know Jose Andres, right? He's our hero of hero chefs, right? I, I, he's one of my best friends. And, and I've, I've been with him in these disaster areas in the Bahamas and, and was supposed to go to Haiti to help teach a cooking school, but then Haiti got too dangerous. And, and, you know, he's been in Ukraine in Poland probably six times. I mean, he literally, um, he's literally changed the face on what FEMA and all these other world organizations should have been doing because he's smartly, he smartly organized that every chef in the world is potentially a world central kitchen chef, right? So by building, uh, and by the way, he also got a hundred million dollars from Jeff Bezos, which of course helps his mission, but he was doing really well be, even before that because anyone in that disaster area, be it Bahamas or Poland, Ukraine, or wherever it is in an earthquake in China, there are always chefs and every chef in every country is just like every chef here. We want to help. We want to feed the people that don't have a home, that don't have water. It's what we want to do. So we immediately want to do that. And Jose has figured out the system that whichever kitchen in that city or town or whatever that didn't get destroyed, they become the kitchen that makes food for everyone, not just the citizens, but police and fire and military, whoever, because they all need to eat. And so whichever one's open, and then he smartly then funds them so they can keep staying open, keep jobs going, right? (laughs) Not to get... It's not really political, but I think one of the worst things we did in this country with COVID was we we paid all the employees all this amount of money. So then everyone stopped working. They should have paid the owners of the restaurants and contractually made them pay their employees. Because, of course, there's bad owners that would just take the money and run. But if they actually got the money and then paid and stayed open, we wouldn't have had this incredible glut of we're, yeah, we're like two million cooks down right now in this country. Right. And so that's, that's just as a side note, next time. Keep businesses open, right? Don't don't just pay because people are like, I'm making six hundred a week doing nothing. Why am I going to go in and cut vegetables, right? And it's just I can't blame them. I mean, you know, this is and it was still dangerous, right? Because it was COVID. So, yeah. uh, but but again, I think this platform we have, which is every banquet, every gala, every type of fundraiser, always has food involved, right? So we get asked. Across the boards, I can't even tell you how many times we're asked to do events. And uh, fortunately, I think about 10, 12 years ago, I, I personally started focusing on one charity called Family Reach, right? We financially help families dealing with cancer, which is still one of the major reasons people are bankrupt is the cancer diagnosis. So I kind of hung my hat there and I raised proudly over 11 million bucks for them over 12 years. And uh, through cooking life, through cooking for people, getting people to open up their wallets because the ones that can do. And, and, uh, and that kind of, you know, we're going to, uh, if I may try to segue into Ming's Bings, um, 
our, our motto for Ming's Bings is eat good, feel good, do good. Uh, and that, that to me is key for Ming's Bings. Eat good because it has to be delicious, right? I'm an iron chef. If it's not delicious, just forget about it. Because it doesn't matter if something's good for you. If it's not delicious, they may try it once. They're not going to stick to it. Sure. I actually hate the word diet. It doesn't even exist in Chinese. So you don't, if you diet, you're going to fall off of it because diet means you're taking something away. Just think of a different way of eating. I mean, one, one thing I did a long time ago, uh, and I pretty much do it, Mark Bittman, uh, who's you know the great New York Times food writer, he started doing this. He was a little bit overweight a while ago. He started just eating vegetarian till dinner. That's it. And it's super simple to do. And try to lower your carbs. So don't do sandwiches, do, do salads. But eat vegetarian. And then at night, eat anything you want. You'll never feel like you're on a diet because it's not a diet. It's just a way of eating. And uh, so eat good is the first part. Feel good. Plant-based does just make your body feel better, right? It's just it's science. Uh, less inflammation from uh, or no inflammation from plants. Being gluten-free, no inflammation makes you feel better. And for all of us on this call, makes you feel better in your head because it is better for the environment, right? A little few hundred thousand gallons of less water to produce that versus, you know, meat-based things. I have nothing against meat. I still eat meat, but it is something that we do need to think about. And then do good, which is, I think, just as important. And it also how I determine how I hire my people, because the do good part is some proceeds of all sale Ming's Bings benefit both Dana-Farber, which is the awesome cancer hospital that saved my wife's life, saved my CEO's life, saved thousands of lives, uh, and then Family Reach. So that mission is instilled in the DNA of, of Ming's Bings, and everyone I hire knows that they're working for this. Because I don't think you're a true success by just making money. If you don't leave your mark and help people along the entire way, you're not a true success. You're just not. Well said. Very well said. So, Where do you buy Ming's Bings? That's a great question. It's actually, it's very cute. It's a, called a Bing Finder. You go to mingsbings.com and we have a Bing Finder. And so based on where you live, you can see we're at 4,500 stores now. So you can get Bings um, everywhere but Arkansas, Fogley and Rosie. Sorry. Uh, in Montana, we can't get them yet. We get them shipped here for my restaurant, but but we're getting there. Uh, we're getting there. You can buy them online too. You can we ship anywhere in the country if you buy them online. Uh, I I love them because they're delicious and kids like them because they're crunchy. They're they're basically <clears throat> I didn't explain this. A bing, bing in Chinese is a real dim sum item, right? You've all had them. You've had tsung yu bing. Tsung yu is scallions. Scallion pancake is a bing. Everyone's had scallion pancakes probably. I think. Um, there's also sherbing, which are stuffed with pork, like a hockey puck shape. And then there's jenbing, but they kind of do like a crepe rotating thing and they fold it up. So those are all bings. So I've modernized the bing by creating a gluten-free wrapper out of brown rice. Uh, and then I just filled it with plant-based deliciousness. We actually, coming this fall, we're changing our plant bases. It's made from GMO-free soybeans right now. Uh, but we're actually, I, I tried another brand that's actually even better and it's pea protein. So we're going to have no allergens whatsoever. Um, some people don't like soy. And uh, so we're excited. So this fall, we'll have uh, a whole line of these things that will that will be allergen friendly completely. Awesome. That's amazing. And what flavors do you have of those again? So we now have nine flavors. Um, we have cheeseburger. Our two newest ones is uh, pizza. It's a supreme pizza and a cheesesteak. 
We have a cheeseburger. We have a fiesta. It was made from chorizo. We have a sausage and pepper. Um, we have the original egg veg, although that's, that's being weaned out because unfortunately it's just so expensive. I ironically produce that because it can't, it can't be put into a machine. The, the, the filling, it's not, mm. it's not, a, you know, like a ground, a ground protein. <clears throat> and we have four breakfast things. So we, oh, sorry. And my wife's favorite Buffalo cauliflower. Um, we also have four breakfast things using something called just egg, which is a mung bean scrambled egg product. So it's again, still vegan. Sausage and pepper, chorizo, um, uh, and potato, uh, just egg and a regular egg and cheese. I guess it's just three now. And um, um, and then down the pike, I can't talk about it, but come this fall, we're launching a whole a whole bunch of new SKUs as well. But oh. I can't tell you. But we're excited. It's, it's, we're, it's, we're at the point here. We're three years in the company. And <clears throat> it, look, it's hard, right? It's, it's no easier starting a company than opening a restaurant. They both have their challenges. Uh, it's of course people based, right? Either your people are good or not. I'm so blessed. I have amazing people on the team. Um, and then timing and whatnot. And look, if you read the paper, you know that like beyond me got destroyed Q1 this year, right? They lost like three, $4 billion of valuation. Uh, tattooed chef right now is just filed. So there's trials and tribulations. We're not going well, we are actually still growing, which is just, you know, I, I think that's the team. And, and, and I'm very proud of our product because in, in, 12 minutes in an air fryer, you have a perfectly crisp, no hassle. Um, in an oven, it's about 14 minutes. No no spraying, no parchment, just a sheet tray, 425, and you have a really great product. And, and I think, you know, and it's fulfilling, right? One bing is 4.4 ounces. So my wife can eat one and she's full. I eat two and I'm stuffed. And, uh, you know, people want... Um, People want convenience, and these are now pretty convenient. Uh, we actually designed them. They're a minute 55 in a Turbo Chef. So for those outlets, food outlets, Dunkin' Donuts, people like that have Turbo Chefs, you know, we're certainly looking into that as well. Um, it's yeah. I, I, I will be a true success when you guys all say to each other, have you been today? <laughs> Once become vernacular, then, then we made it. I also would, I also in my head would be a gigantic success if we ever could get into McDonald's or places like McDonald's, oh, yeah. because mm -hmm. the reason we have obesity in the world, but certainly in this country is actually poverty, right? You're a single mom, single yeah. dad, three kids, you have 20 bucks. You have to go to Burger King McDonald's, right? There's, for me to say, get organic chicken breasts and carrots and cook. Well, first of all, they don't know how to cook. They have three jobs and they don't have time. So of course, so McDonald's, they sustenance. It provides a great service to you know hundreds of millions of people a day. But there's not really nothing there that's going to be good for you because it's fast food. So at the same price as a Big Mac, if you can get a Ming's Bing's cheeseburger, same price. It can't be more expensive. I think that was the demise of Impossible Whopper. It was more. How are you going to get someone to try something that's less good? I like to eat meat and it's more expensive. That's, that, that's hard. It's a big challenge, right? So same price point of not even cheaper. And you get the same satiation and craveability, right? You're not eating like, oh, this tastes like health food. If someone says that about a Ming's Bing's, I blew it. It should be, it tastes delicious. And, oh, it's good for me too? Then then we have a winner. So that that ultimately, because that, because as you know, obesity causes $2 trillion of medical bills and worse in this country. We could get rid of obesity. Every other disease, diabetes, heart disease, they would all just fall off. You are what you eat. I've said it since day one. And... Uh, it's important. I think it's more important than ever before because you just don't want to, you, you don't want to have to use drugs and healthcare to get healthy. Just stay out of the hospital. Just eat more vegetables. <laughs> Drink water, eat more vegetables. If everyone in this country did that, 
we'd be a lot healthier. We really would. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we love your efforts toward changing that. We're yeah, trying. We really do. Yeah. One bing at a time. One bing at a time. <laughs> I do. I do implore people if they have time, um, and if you, unfortunately, we've all been touched by cancer. Please check out familyreach.org. It's an awesome foundation that that really helps people stay in their homes, uh, gives them financial planning. Look, if you have a cancer diagnosis, and 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 this is how I got so hooked. I hooked into it. I met a single mom with. Uh, it was Raquel Michaela. Michaela was, I guess, through two and a half at the time. He already had cancer as an infant. She was a single mom. She had enough savings. They got through the cancer. But then, unfortunately, it came back. And when cancer comes back for children, it's more than twice as worse. Uh, this time when it came back, she had no more money because who? no one has cancer insurance. No one has $50,000, $100,000 in the bank for cancer. Just no one does. And now broke, loses home. They lived almost two years in a homeless shelter while Michaela was getting chemo and radiation. This, right? I, hopefully, none of you have been in a homeless shelter to live. I've not. I've cooked in them. I've never lived there. That's already an incredibly traumatic experience, especially if your kid is going through cancer. Uh, and then the kicker was the oncologist told Raquel, uh, Michaela needs a bone marrow transplant to live. But unfortunately, because of the sanitary conditions of the homeless shelter, we cannot administer. It won't stick. Sorry. Oh, no. You can't tell mom, sorry, we have a cure, but we can't administer. That's when family stepped in and says, no BS. Here's your apartment back for a year. Michael Danzinger was the donor who's in heaven as well, but he's so generous. They took care. We said, Michaela, you take care of Michaela. We got your housing. This kid I hug every year. He's now 15. And every time I see him, I know I know I helped him. And, and that that's success right there. There's no more successful. There's, you just can't. There's nothing better than that. And that you can do through food. So, that I love that you that you've taken a platform for connecting people, for making people happy, taking that dream that you spoke of earlier with just your food, and then expanded that into a lot of your philanthropic work. That is incredible. And I'm trying to keep talking so that I don't cry at that story. So <laughs> if you'll forgive me for just a second. Yeah. I do have usually every time too. Yeah, but I, you know, it's it's just job. we're all put on the planet for something, right? Yeah. yeah, you have to uh, you have to make the best. Cool. So, um, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say to find Ming's Bings, you, there's a link on Ming.com or you can go to Ming'sBings.com and please follow uh, Chef Ming Sai at Ming Sai on Instagram. Yep. He's on TikTok. He's on Facebook. He's everywhere. You can't miss him. Just and if you live in L.A., you can come to a pop-up restaurant oh. right now. I was just there two days ago. It's called Netflix Bites. You can go to Netflix Bites um, <clears throat> and reserve a table. Uh, it's a very cool idea. So Netflix decided to take a group of us chefs that have been on Netflix. So there's three of us iron chefs. There's Curtis Stone, whose catering company is running this restaurant, which is why I agreed to do it because Curtis is an incredible chef and his team is Dominique Crenn. One of my great friends who's, you know, the only three-star Michelin women chef in this country today. Uh, and then two people I just met who are rock stars. Rodney Scott. He's got the Barbecue Pitmaster show he did on Netflix. And then this great Korean, American-born Korean girl, Ann Kim, who makes incredible pizza. Actually, from you guys know. She makes this pickle pie in Minnesota. 
And so all of us, we trained their staff three or four dishes so you can actually eat some. You can eat a dish that I made on Iron Chef instead of with Curtis. So this is literally, we're calling it, you know, film to table or TV to table. And it's the first time anyone's really done it. People have done themed dinners like on Stranger Things, but what are you going to serve? Slime out of a tree, right? It's not not quite not quite as tactile as lobster shumai, right? right. Uh, so, so if you, we're running, um, it, fortunately, it's incredibly busy. We're we're sold out for many weeks, and uh, but we run through September fifteenth. So if you're in LA, you want to try some food that we made on TV. There's an opportunity. That'd be uh, awesome. Things that your grocery store close to you, so do that first, please. Because yeah. my boys need to go to college, although I can't use that joke. <laughs> graduated from college, so now I have to figure out a new, a new plea why you should buy things. I think buy things for yourself because they're delicious. Yes, and healthy. Well, I went over time. We've talked for a long time here, children. No, that is. <laughs> but I I was going to say, like, this has been an amazing, amazing time. You talk so passionately about passionately about what you do, the work that you're um, that you're putting yourself into. And it sounds like you launch yourself into wherever your passion takes you. And that that speaks volumes of your character. And so I want to thank you personally on, on behalf of our ModRom team for being on the podcast today. Yeah, please. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed chatting with you all. Good luck talking to Fogley in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the thank best. You. You'll have a great chat with him. And, uh, but you should make sure he gets Rosie, his better half, on the phone too. Yeah. <laughs> She she she's much more interesting than Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys, thank you. Huh? Thank you for this platform to be able to chat about Ming's Bings and, and everything and uh, and continue success with what you guys are doing. Right. You guys are spreading the glory. Thank you. I, I saw I saw all your, a lot of people you've had on. You had that eight time Emmy winning shooter. Right. Who I've crossed paths with. So you've had some really cool people as well. So congrats. Yeah. Keep doing what you guys are doing. Thank you Thank so you. much. Appreciate hearing that. Thank you. That means All a right. lot to us. Thank you. All right. We will talk. We will talk soon. And maybe I'll see you in Minnesota next time I'm there visiting. That you. would be fabulous. Awesome. All right, guys. Peace Thanks and love. Again. We'll see you guys. Right. Soon. Thank All you. Right. Ciao. Bye bye. Bye.